0: You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Goldbeard.
1: Hello and welcome to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, the first and only podcast that is strictly dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of the one and only Reinhold Niebuhr. My name is Cliff Bailey, and I am joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. What's up, fellas? Hello.
0: Hey.
1: In our, in our last episode, um, we introduced ourselves and kind of opened up a bit about what draws us to Niebuhr. And we answer some more basic questions about what we're trying to achieve with this podcast and how we're going to do it. So if you're just tuning in to this episode right here and you're like, who are these people? Make sure you go back and listen to that very first podcast at some point. Um, now, in the second episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, we're going to be discussing a new article. And this article discusses a host of different issues. But in the end, it references our boy. Carl Paul Reinhold Niebuhr, um, and kind of ties in a lot of his points about it with him. Uh, But given the type of issues that this article explores and the way Niebuhr is brought into the conversation, we felt our discussion would inevitably lead to one of the more infamous topics surrounding Niebuhr, and that is his stance against pacifism. So we're each coming into this discussion armed with some fresh Niebuhr reading specifically as it relates to Niebuhr's turn away from and turn against pacifism. I believe that happened uh, in the late 30s, uh, right? Mid to late 30s. And I hesitated making this a front and center topic this early in the show because it's so linked with Niebuhr in contemporary Christian theology as kind of a lightning rod, especially for you out there who are more into like Yoder and Howerwas. Um, so I was actually talking to a friend recently I don't know if you guys have experienced this but he really likes Niebuhr but he knows very little about him outside of his stance against pacifism this is like Niebuhr's main issue in some circles and they really don't know anything beyond the pacifism issue some people really like him but uh, but they just haven't gotten into him beyond that but um, regardless it just so happened that this is Indeed, a time where many in Christian theological circles are maybe questioning their stance a bit uh, regarding pacifism, and it seems like as good a time as any to broach the topic. So, sorry for being so long-winded at the top. Let's bring on our co-hosts, Zach Narison and Aaron Duncan. How's it going, fellas? It's
0: going good. Hmm. <laughs> Excited to talk about this topic. I've been thinking about it uh, a lot, actually. As soon as, as soon as Russia decided to invade Ukraine. I was thinking about, you know, like it it brings to mind kind of the idea, like, do, how do we respond? You know, do we take, do we just take this lying down or do we um, is violence necessary? You know, it's kind of, it's been kind of haunting me over and over again.
1: Why is it, why is it so, do you think such a difficult topic that a lot of people dread? Uh, Is it because Christ seems so clear on the topic of violence?
0: I think probably it's just unresolved. I think I I, I started out personally very uh, pacifistic when I became a Christian. I started out like, you know, I remember my little brother would like punch me in the face and I have to be like, I won't hit you back. You know, I was like very committed to to pacifism. So um, how old was it? Were you? Uh, I was probably like a freshman in high school when that yeah. happened. And so my little brother is probably three years younger than me but i just was like i actually stopped playing violent video games because i was like this is wrong you know like we can't um but then i you know i became a uh a little bit more familiar with kind of some of the brutalities that exist in the world and how it could be very necessary for governments to restrain those brutalities Mm. um but i also like you know what's that movie that came out uh the the ridge movie um
2: Hacksaw
0: Ridge. Um, Hacksaw Ridge. I just, I love that story. You know, I love that story of him committing yeah. to pacifism and doing a good thing while he's committed to pacifism. It's like, it's a heart, you know, I, I it's like an unresolved issue for me. I, I feel kind of an anxiety both ways. But I also know that like, you know, as I watch little toddlers get pulled out of the rubble, you know, dead. Yeah. I, I saw some images the other day and I have toddlers and I was thinking to myself, man, I, I would probably kill somebody. Like I, I would be right there probably, for that reason, you know, especially as a dad, I think a da- being a da- dad has changed my view of pacifism big time. It's like, and I would never, I, I would never have owned a gun ever before, just because I just, I don't know. I just, I don't want them in the house. I just, I'm not, I'm not, against guns or anything. It's just, I don't, I don't too much, too much bad can happen. You know what I mean? In my mind. But now that I'm a dad and I'm starting to think like, man, somebody breaks into my house, you know, am I going to be a pacifist?
1: <laughs> right. No, I, I feel that same struggle. I, um, and I think that we could also say from the top that we have all, as the dude, as uh, Walter from the Big Lebowski says, we've all dabbled in pacifism, right? Uh, and um, we've all been there, you know, in that. And I, and we probably still exist somewhere in there where we You know, we lend an ear to it and we empathize with the position and we're all we're all probably on varying degrees of our readiness for violence and that type of thing. I remember um, one time Ashley was out of town and for some reason when Ashley's out of town, my my wife, my senses are heightened and it might just be because the house is a little bit quieter, Um, but I remember waking up and thought I heard something down in the basement. Now we ha- we own a gun. My uh, father-in-law, I I don't think he would have accepted me as a son-in-law if I didn't if I didn't have a gun and live in the city. Uh, he saw saw that as a necessary thing. So he gave me um, a shotgun. But I remember waking up in the middle of the night and thinking I heard something. And I went to my closet and looked at the shotgun, and I was like, I can't do it. So I went over and looked in the other corner and saw my axe. I was like, okay, I'll take the axe. And somehow that's like better. Yeah. That would be the messiest like self oh. event of, you know, self defense in the hist- you know, in history. This guy's you know, hacked to death because he broke into yeah. some guy's house. Probably would have preferred the shotgun. But yep. uh, but anyway, I still have that like I don't want to kill someone if I don't have to. And, you know, people like break in all the time and, you know, just see- looking for drugs and stuff like that. And I don't think that just breaking into your house is, is you know, automatically gives me license to take your life um, mm-hmm. just because you want to take something that I own, um, you know, but uh, but anyway, regardless, I think that we're well, all, uh, you know, we're, none of us here are hawks, right? I mean, none of us here say, "Whoa, war is awesome, right? Yeah, I know. No,
2: no, not a
0: first, not a first line move. No, no. It's, it's interesting. You say that though, about the ax and it's a great example, the ax and the gun. Um, because Niebuhr in the, the chapter I kind of read for this week, he talks about how we, we sometimes like to look at violence as like a certain type of coercion and then like nonviolent resistance. We, we turn that into like, there's no coercion used in that. And it's like, there's just degrees of coercion. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah.
1: And you're blind if you don't see that. And I, and I, and I think that um, this is maybe what Aaron and I were talking about this earlier, maybe what doesn't allow for a strict pacifist to even enter into the discussion of something like police brutality, because you have to acknowledge from the top that some force might be necessary, uh, but there is a good type of force and a bad type of force. And that kind of nuance there maybe doesn't allow the pacifism would have to say that all violence, all forces, is bad, which kind of removes them from that discussion.
2: But I think we probably should be clear like when we say someone's blind, we're not accusing someone of being morally inept. But I think the reason why there's a sort of blindness, and, and to be just totally upfront, I'm not sure exactly where I sit on the issue myself. Mm-hmm. It's just something that I think Niebuhr points out really well. Is that when you read the, the teachings of Jesus, where he says "love your neighbor," these seem like morally absolute statements. So, how can you not come away from those with the sort of sense of wanting to portray the sort of pacifism that he seems to also, you know, encourage? And that's what I think complicates the issue. It makes me dread talking
1: to people about because it seems like Christ is so resolute mm-hmm. um, in that in that stance. But we're going to see how Niebuhr. Complicates the crap out of it, um, and uh, and rightfully so. I mean, uh, but uh, we'll we'll get into that um, that here in a second. Uh, so the article that we were we read today um, that just came out, I think, the day after Russia invaded Ukraine, is by Mark Tooley, who's the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, and he is the editor of the publication Providence uh, Journal of Christianity and American Foreign Policy. The article is named Putin's aggression must not go unchallenged. And it's important to note here that Thule is, he claims Christianity, so he's, he's a Christian. And this uh, this publication in itself is, tries to to deal in that awkward space of living in a Christian and understanding, the dynamics of geopolitics and foreign policy and international relations. Um, But uh, the article makes clear right from the beginning that Putin's aggression must not go unchallenged. And the subtitle is, the invasion of Ukraine should be met with persistence, patience and confidence. So let's just start on maybe some notes that we have about the article, what stuck out to you and so forth. And, um, let's go ahead and start with Zach. What, what were you, your thoughts on reading this
2: article?
0: I just, I mean, I, I just love that he mentioned Niebuhr. I mean, you gotta give the guy a plug when you can, you know, and anytime I see an article with the the Nebs in there, man, I gotta, gotta read it. Um, yeah, I liked just kind of the overall idea behind it, right? This idea of persistence, patience, and confidence. I think it's kind of, uh, I, I like the idea of approaching this issue with those kind of background elements.
1: Um, and right he- on its face, it seems very Niebuhr-esque in that Niebuhr was a big fan and arguably an architect of the containment policy during uh, the USSR. Uh, yeah. Keeping the USSR within their own limits and practicing patience, you know, and force where needed, but ultimately patience um, with with the fact.
0: Yeah, but I I think he leaves out an element uh, that that Niebuhr stresses, especially in uh, immoral immoral moral man in a moral society, and that is that maybe you might add one one thing to the top there. You know, when he says um, persistence, patience, and confidence, you might say, uh, and maybe a bit of self criticism. You know, I made mean, a bit of self. Uh, the ability to recognize that the systems which create these problems, right? And for instance, in the, the article that I re- or the chapter I read, he talks about how Gandhi was able to see Englishmen in England just as average dudes, just regular dudes. He didn't have to hold like a certain hostility towards the people of, of England, mm-hmm. but he held a like fierce hostility towards the the system of imperialism in in India. And I, I've been, you know, I think that's a really important because one of, one of the reasons Niebuhr stresses it is he really wants to, um, it, it elicits resentments, you know what I mean? It elicits resentments that result, that uh, go on even beyond the war itself hmm. and, and limiting those resentments is really important to resolving the conflict. Um, and I think that, you know, that's there, there's part of that here. I, I wish he'd kind of mentioned that a little bit more, maybe put that in. In in his article, that's an excellent point.
1: It is lacking in a certain self criticism or a warning to ourselves. Uh, I think maybe his warning was more about Christians who are not critical of Putin. Uh, So maybe his audience is different. But Mm. you're you're right to say that there are certain resentments that form. (laughs) some very hard, uh, some really harsh sentiments that really change our culture quite a bit. We don't have to go that long ago uh, in our nation's history uh, to see how even a justifiable war perhaps, or maybe a justifiable suspicion of, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda or Taliban or ISIS can really turn into a racism. Uh, It can turn into, Kind of calcify into these really deep seated fears and emotions about the other, Um, something to be mindful of. And, you know, looking at USSR, I mean, uh, McCarthyism, um, and, you know, uh, demonizing communism to the point that you turn it against your own people. Mm. Um, These are all resentments that do. Hard in our culture. And there are things to be mindful of. I I think that's a good warning that Thule maybe should have, should have added here.
0: Well, and I understand what he's trying to say. Right. But I think that Niebuhr definitely would have added this. Like he says in, in uh, I always get this wrong, moral man in a moral society. He says uh, one of the most important results of a spiritual discipline against resentment in a social dispute, is that it leads to an effort to discriminate between the evils of a social system and situation, the individuals who are involved in it, the situation of the individuals who are involved in it. I just think that's a good thing to remember, you know, because we can kind of put ourselves, um, it can be so easy, you know, to just get like sucked right into that, like Russia versus the West. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean?
1: Um, Yeah. And those resentments not only have an impact on who we are, Like I mentioned McCarthyism and Islamophobia, but it leaves us blind to some of the perhaps democratic energies occurring right now in Russia. And I think that that's something that this situation and just having, um, all this access to social media, allows us to see the Russian people as being victims. Oh my gosh. Did you guys see that, um, that captured Russian soldier, uh, talking the other day, um, and trying to open up his people's eyes to what's actually happening in Ukraine. It's incredible. Like he just thought that he was a police, he was, his occupation was he's was a policeman and he was put on the front lines of this conflict and didn't know what they were even doing till he got there, Till he got to Ukraine. He thought that it was going to be like, um, you know, tending to social unrest and protests and that type of thing. He got there and they are, you know, Destroying cities. Um, And he points to kind of their inability to see in Russia actually what's going on and Putin's control of the media and that type of thing. But yeah, it's important to see that that this is a conflict of seemingly a person or a regime. Um, And it's important to humanize the actual evil, I think, in this case, and direct it toward that one human of Vladimir Putin and the people who are surrounding him.
0: Aaron, what did you think, man, of the article?
2: Um, from what I do recall, but I think, and I was just looking through Cliff's stuff here, but it was the one thing that did come to mind is, in I think this is more or less probably relevant in terms of my own discussions with family members and friends. Um, and also, I think what you probably see on different news outlets is what is so interesting for the US to be involved in this conflict you've Tuck Carlson who brings up some interesting points about you know what would a farmer in Kentucky why would he care about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment as opposed to the gas prices back at home or you know other things that are much more within his immediate interests why is the U.S. getting involved in this sort of conflict and some of my family members have you know voice their opinions uh, to the effect that they don't think we should be involved at all in any way, shape or form. Now, I think Mark Tooley makes a pretty interesting point that it is in the U.S.'s interest to, um, to prevent dictators from taking over or invading other countries and stuff like that. Um, yeah, because it, it's interesting. in democracy in itself. It's a principle that extends beyond our national boundaries
1: what Tucker Carlson seems to be saying here, he he seems to be conveniently echoing like a Rawlsian ethic of looking to the farmer and what would the farmer think? And it's a, you know, uh, and the way that he uses, uses it is straight populism. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it ignores is the broad, obviously the geopolitical factors, but the connection between the geopolitical factors and what we have here at home. In Niebuhr's time, when he's starting to talk about, uh, he's starting to resist the uh, the ideas of pacifism, um, That that is his main enemy, is, is mm-hmm. he's trying to wake people up to, to seeing that, okay, look, our isolationism is actually making <clears throat> this worse. The fact that we aren't getting involved and, and mm-hmm. you know, doing anything with Germany, the fact that we're letting him uh, keep on going this is going to wind up on our shores mm-hmm. eventually and guess what it did in pearl harbor this these things that we interpret at first as not our problem those chickens come home to roost eventually
2: do you think that's sort of and this might be a good question for you both of you because i think you the eu have requested that 29 fighter jets be stationed from poland into Ukraine for Ukrainian news. But Vladimir Putin has said, if Poland does make that transition, he will see that as Poland as being um, stepping into being an aggressor, and will treat it accordingly. The U.S. from the beginning has warned that Russia was going to invade Ukraine via some proxy means, and it has, and they are now warning that Russia's interests lie beyond Ukraine. So do you think what Niebuhr is warning about the isolation isolationism of 1930s 40s u s applies in this situation? I mean we obviously can't tell the future, but how how cut and dry do you think those situations are applicable to one another in, in this case
1: well i would I would say that there is a, a little difference between now and the late thirties, and that is that both countries have nukes. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that we should do nothing. Um, mm-hmm. It actually means we need to do all that we can without escalating, without escalating that situation. So I uh, I think that Putin, he's been threatening threatening people like that forever. He's, you know, and sometimes we can always tell with a dictator, you can always tell what they're going to do based upon their own self-interest,
2: mm-hmm. especially
1: a dictator like him. You can always trust in their own self-interest. Him attacking an airbase in Poland is not in his own self-interest, especially right now. He's getting bogged down enough. We're we're kind of I'm kind of getting off the topic here, but um, it, it wouldn't be in Putin's self-interest to right now attack maybe down, maybe years down the road or something like that remember there was a big space between um Crimea and this invasion you know there's uh 6 or 7 years um so he has kind of this long game in mind of Russia regaining its uh its empire um but uh but yeah i don't i think that a lot of people are looking at the nuclear deterrent as something that's real but it's really just kind of empty threats yeah. remember the the day after us put sanctions on Russia, those crippling swift related sanctions. He was threatened. That's when he said, uh, We have put our nukes on high alert, type of thing. But that didn't stop the sanctions. We kept on doing it, you know, because we know that's not in his interest to blow the world up, you know, over sanctions um so you could never listen to a dictator's threats always look to their own self-interest mm-hmm. i would say in the long run we should be very mindful of where he goes after ukraine but concerning his immediate self-interest he doesn't even have a lock on ukraine yet like mm-hmm. he's he's in a lot of trouble in ukraine so i don't i don't see him he might be thinking in the back of his mind okay after this we're going to go to estonia or something like that and we're going to.
0: i think there was there was actually uh the president of Belarus or president, sorry, the Supreme leader of Belarus, whatever you want to call him. uh, He accidentally revealed on TV, as I understand it, that they're planning to go to Moldova next, as I understood from the article I was reading.
1: That's possible. Um, But good luck. I mean, the trajectory trajectory that Russia is on right now with these sanctions, I mean, they're... The ruble is basically bombed out. Like it's worthless. It's like point yeah. zero one six, uh, dollar to the dollar to the U.S. dollar. Like it's it's obscene. Um, Putin has to know that he can't contain this situation from his people forever, and he's gonna like if he keeps going down this road. Th- there's even more sanctions that we can put on them. Like they didn't even completely unload everything um so they have uh, to have
2: some leverage to yeah yeah, they
1: have to have some leftover leverage so if he does decide to go even further and remember how sanctions work they do uh in this case they do attack working people in russia um they do attack the people immediately surrounding putin um and that's to create this discord you know, um, and it's a point, actually, that Thule makes uh, later on in the article. This is why he says to remain patient. Um, he says that we need to uh, remember that. And I, I put it in my notes as I thought that it was maybe um, I, I don't think it's naive to consider this, but I, it, it definitely is wishful thinking to a degree. Um, I said Thule seems to have faith in people that those around Putin are not necessarily party to his shenanigans and due to the silence around Putin, the criticism might go undetected until it finally explodes in a coup or something like that. Uh, so Thule is arguing there will be an economic impact, sanctions and global isolation. And he seems to believe that this will create that added pressure. Just It's all about creating kind of a pressure cooker around putin that his oligarchs sooner or later are going to ha- have enough and get rid of him you know um and may i don't know what do you guys think that's naive Is i think that, that's, that's a long game i
0: i i think it's very naive and i think it's very i mean i don't know I, i've never studied the fall and rise of dictators but i think that people underestimate Uh, I think Putin's probably pretty intelligent and probably thought, I mean, I I would think probably thought through some of these, you know, Um, and apparently he's isolated himself pretty well within um, Russia somewhere. They don't know exactly. Right. He had the deep fake video where he's he's in a bunker. (laughs) So he's in a bunker somewhere. Um, And he's been known to off pretty much anybody that kind of stands in his way. Um, But again, Even oligarchs, you know, he uh, there's that guy that just died in England, you know, this Russian oligarch that died in England. And they were kind of like, oh, he he hung himself, but they're not really sure kind of how that worked out exactly yet. Um, you know, just he just happened to be, you know, a Ukrainian oligarch, you know, it's like, you know, it's it,
1: but
2: and he,
0: you know, he hasn't hesitated to kill people in other countries, you know, he hasn't hesitated to
2: Salisbury in England as well. Yeah, Yeah.
0: I mean, he he he, he did a nerve agent on somebody there in England, didn't he? In Salisbury, Um, yeah. Well, and yeah.
1: we bring up a good point, Zach, about, you know, we got to suspect that Putin saw this coming. Yeah. But to bring Niebuhr into the, into the conversation, I think Niebuhr would be the first to point out that rationalization is not everything, that ha- having plans isn't everything. And a lot of times those plans, those rationalizations are a... Are a servant to the passions, and in the case of Putin, it seems like his his justifications, his rationalization, his plans are all feeding into this megalomania and the this desire to form his, his to write his own legacy by recapturing um, the largest country in Europe. Uh, that I mean, we look back at at Bush. Okay, and, we, and we, can th- we can see now histor- you know, uh, with the distance of history that Bush got over his skis, right? And that whole kind of neoconservative project at the time was thinking that they could do a whole lot more with this massive military than they actually could. They couldn't even successfully take over Iraq in a timely ma- manner. Uh, much less create this uh, effective democracy and, and friend to the United States. Um, so that, that playing God, no matter how rational it all may seem, uh, actually creates a blindness to your own folly. So I think that Putin, I don't think that Putin expected the SWIFT sanctions. I don't think he expected the, the ruble bottoming out. I don't think he expected this type of global isolationism. Um, And you can tell by his rhetoric, like the panic of threatening nukes because of the sanctions. Like he, you know, and he thought that he was going to march into Ukraine and it'd be, you know, in a couple of days, they're taking over Kiev. Uh, So there is a blindness to his logic that I think that Thule here is banking on. And I think that, um, Niebuhr probably would have banked on given his Niebuhr ascribing to the uh, to the containment strategy and that type of thing. This system, what they're going after here is not sustainable. And you got to believe that that's the case with Putin. And Thule gives the example of Turkey. Turkey getting kind of way out there and getting far away from democracy. But we can see how pressures uh, who is it? Erdogan is the leader of Britain, Turkey. Yeah. Um, Erdoğan was. Uh, what's that? Erdogan is this his name. Is it? Yeah, it's spelled uh, like Erdogan. Yeah, okay. whatever. Um, but he brought them away from a parliamentary system and basically became an emperor. But we can see how market pressures and. Um, and time have kind of brought them back to their base a little bit. And Tully's kind of making that same argument about Russia, whether Putin's still in charge or not, um, they will get brought back into their own, um, to the path of least resistance, which is their baseline. You know, it's really difficult for a nation to take over a nation the size of Ukraine. The United States, which is, you know, much more powerful Beyond Russia and GDP, we would have a difficult time taking over Ukraine. Okay, uh, I don't think Putin. I think Putin way overestimated his abilities and uh, being able to do this.
0: I don't know. I I think I hope you're right, and I hope that the, we're right in the West and that we're making the right decisions and everything. But I think in some ways, there's other things that are you know, not all of these sanctions and everything are. They're beneficial in that they're coercive, right? They're going to hopefully coerce him to make the decision we want him to make. But they also do things like solidify his power, right? He he may, he people think, oh, this can going to eliminate his power. No, it actually may make him more powerful. It may make his people more desperate. It may make them more cut off from the world. And that may actually make him more powerful. Um, we've and tried that was the s-
1: problem in, in with Saddam. And that's why... I think they ultimately made the decision to invade because we thought the sanctions were going to keep them in check, but they didn't. They actually just weakened uh, the people, and and to, to no effect. But people are uh, experts are calculating the Russia situation differently because these are a people who are no strangers to revolution, and these democrat you know they want a democracy. I think it's people under the age of forty um, are. Uh, very mixed about Putin. It's not like the older generation. Um, and these people are middle class people like that, that they will be affected. They're going to feel it in their pocket um, and in their their lifestyle when these sanctions really hit. And people are banking on this being a different type of situation from that of Saddam, where it just made Saddam more powerful because it made the people more dependent. Uh, this is a case where it, may, it makes the people more pissed off Um, so perhaps they're more likely to act and, and the oligarchs are more, more likely to do something, but who knows we'll see, but the, the question, the knee question here is what other choice do we have? Are we really going to put in a a no-fly zone and, and risk that escalate? It, it, that will be an escalation that absolutely would be. And that creates the conditions for miscalculations and panic to happen that would cause a nuclear war.
0: I think a better question is when. When do we put a no-fly
1: zone in? I don't
2: uh, I, I don't think it's going to happen.
1: Oh, well... They're,
2: they're pretty resistant I, to the idea of that, aren't they? They're so, very resistant
1: to it, and for good reason, I believe. Yeah. Maybe this is a discussion we should have. But, what? Uh, but we are trying to give them everything we can with Stingers and the, those planes coming out of Poland. Uh, we're trying to give them every, everything we can for them to create their own maybe small uh, no-fly zone around Kiev or some of their major cities. But... Uh, but yeah, I I don't think that's not a place we're going to go in because that suddenly turns the the Russian invasion into a war between U.S. and, and Russia. Automatically well, what, yeah. what
0: I meant by that was uh, I was speaking more of the inevitability of the fact that I think that this Russian aggression is, you know, if it becomes economically sustainable, right? From if they're if they're able to take Ukraine eventually and kind of tediously use you know more, greater and greater atrocities to break the spirit of Ukraine over time, you know, um, at what point do we finally say, okay, well, we'll put a no-fly zone over Poland, or we'll put a no-fly zone over Moldova, or we'll put a, you know, we're, at what point, you know, right? Because he says- Well,
1: uh, let me put it this way. There's already there's already a no-fly zone over there. Yeah. yeah. Like, the, the, Putin already knows what he's getting into when he is going up against NATO. And the sanctions have just further demonstrated the unity yeah. Of, of nato you don't, don't have around with
0: nato here's the thing though we don't know right like like I, I think what putin a little bit was banking on is that he was a i think he was tempting the the fate of not the fate he was he was testing the waters of nato to see would nato solidify or would they be like you know uh do we really want to protect poland do we really want to protect lithuania like do we really want to have a nuclear apocalypse because i almost wonder you know uh, if they take it county by county right or whatever they're broken up to, into in poland or in lithuania how many counties do they have to take for a nuclear apocalypse how many how many districts how many uh, will we let them take one district two districts three districts
1: we got thousands of soldiers right at the border yeah. right now yeah. but I,
0: at what at what point do we do we say uh, okay it's either a nuclear apocalypse or nothing you know what i mean at what point do we say well, it's gonna... not
1: it's never going to be just a nuclear uh, apocalypse or nothing If there were to hypothetically be a situation where Russia attacks um, soldiers on the border of Poland or something like that, then they would call a council. They bring in the representatives to the U.N. Um, They would try to deescalate, deescalate the situation. And at that point, if Putin keeps on going, then then that's what he wants. That that then he has a death wish. Because that much has been very clear. That's that shows the soundness, I believe, of uh, the doctrine of mutually uh, assured destruction. Is that the leader Putin would have to want to die to invade Poland right now? What if he's
0: just not afraid? What I'm saying is like, uh, like just try to think of it. You know, in terms of like game theory, I think what we see happening in China and what we have to see happening in Russia with their kind of hostilities towards Ukraine and then. Uh, Taiwan, right? China towards Taiwan, is that I think they're just saying, go ahead, pull the trigger. You know, they're kind of, they're, they're, they're saying, they're, they're waiting for that moment, right, of weakness to just basically say, "Hmm, I don't think you'll do it, right? I I think, you know, I think even with Australia's, you know, I, I thought it was so strange that Australia decided to buy nuclear submarines from the United States. And then I started to think about this in terms of kind of this, what's going on, right? What kind of thought, I didn't realize just, I guess, the, the the level to which China is starting to kind of think about going to Taiwan and uh, Russia has definitely gone into Ukraine. But I think that maybe some people were more familiar with the situation and realized, wow, you know, are we going to pull the trigger when they invade just hypothetically if China invades the Philippines or maybe if they take Japan, like, like at what point do we pull the trigger at what point? And I think that both those countries know they could take a lot of land before we pull the trigger. And maybe not with NATO, but I think with other countries, I think they can expand. I I think they could. I think that
1: that's accurate. And I think that that's uh, one of the tragedies of the current world order is that it's not all NATO uh, surrounding Russia, is that uh, a dictator could do something like that as long as he has nukes. Absolutely. Uh, What is keeping uh, Kim Jong-un from invading the South is nukes, you know, Is, is the fact that we're built up there. You know, uh, now, but that's the red line. We have a red line and that is called NATO. That as soon as Russia, Russia knows it's outnumbered first and foremost. They cannot win a conventional war against NATO. That's why I'm saying it's a death wish. If they decide to go up against Poland right now or, or Estonia or, or, or another uh, per, like NATO country that's on the peripheral that's out in Eastern Europe then um, they know that they're going to get the full weight of those NATO countries and the United States military. And they know that they cannot win that. What happens when they can't win that? Then it's, it's, it's possible, it's likely, it's whatever nuclear war happens.
0: I, so I, I hope you're right. But I, I truly wonder if they think they can bite off a little bit more each time, just a little bit, just a little bit, you know? Um, I I don't think that's
1: the case with NATO. That is not the case. As soon as they, as soon as a military member steps foot into NATO, there's going to be calls for diplomacy and to get them out of there. And if not, boom, we hit them hard. Like there's, there's not even a discussion at that point. We are going to war with Russia if they do that. And Putin knows that, you know, that's why he's going after Ukraine first. You know, that's why he's not going uh, headlong into NATO because he understands that's not going to happen.
0: I just think it increases the probability, you know, but like it, it's another, I mean, it's really a strange phenomenon because you really do have to pull the trigger at some point. Right. And, and I think that I really believe that they think that they can test the waters at least, you know what I mean? They can push, they can. That's
1: possible, but let's go back to Niebuhr for a second. And the doctrine of Christian realism. And that is we do not make decisions based upon assumptions, but upon reality. What yeah. is the reality on the ground right now we cannot so a lot of people will do this with their how their idealism gets infused with history and make these make these uh, logical um, slippery slopes where they'll say well this is an inevitability so might as well XYZ yeah um, that's what has kept us from going to war with Russia for <laughs> since the 1950s We have fought many proxy wars with Russia Mm
2: -hmm.
1: with, with communism, with, with a a nuclear loaded communism Uh, you know, China or uh, China going into Vietnam um, uh, Afghanistan against the Russians uh, even recently Syria, dude, if a nuclear Holocaust was going to happen because of a proxy war, it was going to happen in Syria. Yeah. We don't appreciate how freaking complex Syria was. You have Assad, you have the rebels, You have Russia backing Assad. You have the United States backing the rebels. You have these third party groups like Al-Qaeda in there and ISIS as well. You have like uh, the White Helmets, you know, you have all these, uh, you have the Kurds, you have all of these different Mm -hmm. groups with all these different motivations all happening in the same place. We even went so far as killing Russian soldiers. Did you know this? Oh, we yeah, yeah. Russian soldiers in Syria. Like 500 U- of them. United States did. And uh, Russia, of course, doesn't want and they don't want a response now. And in some cases, if it's very clear that these were Russian sanctioned soldiers from the military proper, <laughs> that we would be at UN the next day talking this out. We're not going to war. This was an oopsie moment. OK, <laughs> But instead, Russia shrugged it off as these were this is a paramilitary force associated with Russia, but they're not officially a part of it. So even you can see from the way that they acted there, they don't want nuclear war. If if a nuclear war was going to happen by proxy, it was going I'm telling you, I really think it would have been in Syria. Mm -hmm. Emotions are pretty heightened in Ukraine because uh, maybe our. Western maybe country. more racial sentiments yeah. about what Westernization and white people. And, um, and there's been a lot of coverage on this about, you know, how the media is kind of turning Ukraine into something completely different than Syria. And in some ways it is. Uh, but, but we still have these major powers fighting these proxy battles. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that we have survived through proxy battles through a mutual understanding of how warfare works in these, situations. Yes, Russia, Russia, Putin has his sights set on long term, but he's got to make it there. He can't even win in Ukraine right now. He can't even um, freaking, he can't guarantee his economy is even going to be in the shape to have a military. His own factories that make the tanks and make the planes, they get parts from these countries that are now sanctioning them. Like, Mm -hmm. this is where the sanctions become real. And not only that, the workers there, like, how are they going to pay these workers, you know, to even make these planes and stuff like this? They basically have to turn into like indentured servants or something like that. I mean, these uh, to make a war machine like that go, you have to be well funded and they are not. Mm -hmm. So I'm that's why I'm I'm agreeing with Thule here. Let's be patient let's not jump to conclusions let's let's not attach this to kind of slippery slope logic because you you can get there when you kind of and Thule makes this point if you if you see putin as kind of infusing this religious religio historic uh sense of destiny to his mag- megalomania um you can let your mind get into that game and think of this as oh, this is different. He's gun, he's gunning for all, the whole Eastern block there and he's going to take it over. But still we have no choice right now but to stick to our guns. NATO's the red line, um, no flies uh, no no-fly zone right now. Um, but Putin, Putin knows where the lines are and and it's a tragedy. And all we can do is try to help them with humanitarian aid, sanctions, and and a whole crap ton of javelins and stingers and and Polish MIGs.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so he
1: says. Oh, go ahead. I I just concluded with the typical, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how it turns out. Yeah.
0: Um. He, he says. Tully says in his article. He uh. He says. Back then, theologian Reinhold Niebuhr crafted Christian realism as an alternative to both. He strove to explain how the United States can counter dictatorships while not sacralizing itself or fantasizing about the world without struggle. Conflict is a natural state of fallen humanity, especially on the world stage. Christians should advocate statecraft that carefully stewards power for the maximum benefit of peace, security, and freedom for as many as possible.
2: I think that part... Go ahead. I think that part, Zach, the where he says he strobes to explain how the United States can encounter a dictatorship with while not sacralizing itself or fantasizing about a world without struggle, was kind of, It kind of plays into you know your earlier comment about maybe truly totally not including a section on uh, in- introspection whilst engaging in the global theater. Um, because I think it's quite easy for the U.S. at this point and for NATO in the West to see itself as, you know, peace bearers or, you know, the, the sort of gold standard as it is um, and see it can see itself as victims mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, you know, uh, you know seeing itself as one and the same. We are all in the same condition um sinfulness pride and we also have to look at our own country and see that the elements that are stirring in russia are also stirring in our own country in our own backyard we have lots of proto-fascist movements moving and engaging in Mm -hmm. government that could easily uh, you know bring about some sort of leadership in this country with the same sort of you know megalomaniacs dispositions as putin that's an interesting point Uh, i mean go ahead
0: well, I was just going to say, Trump said when when they were just just before the invasion happened, he said that, you know, maybe we should, the peace keep, speaking of the peacekeeping mission, he said, maybe we should do the same thing on our southern border. It's like, you know, so it speaks to what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly where I was going to go, is that earlier on in the war, and I think, so this is right now, we're just talking a week ago. That's the early part of the war, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but earlier on in the war, it seemed like I was sensing that that Russia v Ukraine was going to become a wedge issue for our own politics, and that the Republicans were going to take the side of Putin. Just, by the way, by the things that he was saying and Pompeo was saying, it seemed like that's what that's what was. Starting to formulate in our own politics now, I can see it as going either way, and it really depends on whether Trump, I think, hammers down on that view um, that this is a, a this is a good thing uh, that we should employ this on the southern um, border, that type of thing, uh, or if he, uh, you know, ends up saying, oh. Uh, Putin's not so bad we we look what we did to Native Americans and he starts down that you know what aboutism trail that he's done before with Putin oh we're bad too I'm not going to condemn this guy for doing this bad thing look we got you know uh, Puerto Rico and they're not even a state and you know they they don't you know and like he he has the whole wealth of American sins to point to in order to Mitigate our kind of um,
2: involvement. Yeah, yeah, mitigate our
1: and Mitigate our fears and hatred toward Putin a little bit, and try to make it out to be just um, another political issue to to shrug away. Um, so I don't know. Where, where do you guys think it will that become a wedge issue? I guess it kind of might depend on whether Trump like really doubles down on that or not.
2: Well, I think culturally, in fact. W- you seeing a lot of right-wing preachers um and just people just regular everyday people who uh, i think there are are there was a there was some sort of video recently that there was an american pastor who was in ukraine praising the russian soldiers on their side he was a pastor i think he was a pastor i saw that video yeah and you know that sort of it's, it's very interesting how that plays out, because I was kind of watching Fox News this morning because it's on my parents' house all the time. But there is a Ukrainian pastor fighting on the front line with Ukrainian soldiers and they're praising him. So it seems like a lot is happening, like you're saying, in conservatism, you know, vis-a-vis maybe Trump, without not speaking or making his position clear enough. is it's, it's all just a bit chaotic. There's nothing really clearly defined. But and that's and that doesn't hold well
1: historically in the republican party of being able to hold complexity within itself it's going to become boiled down into a simplified talking point but at some point
2: but i wonder which way is that going to go with people like um marjorie green taylor is that her name Mm -hmm. um and um there's a couple other you know interesting let's say uh because <laughs> nice, nice people. euphemism nice, interesting Congress, people interesting people you know they they they'll flip they're the flippant type kind of like trump when when they get pressure
1: mm-hmm.
2: they will turn their gaze and their rhetoric to conform to whatever people want and say
1: like tucker carlson right now it's so all of a exactly. sudden like you're saying i'm pro-russian a- after that thing that
2: he's mentioned earlier about he he actually said i am pro-russian like and I, I, I there is i think there's a video where he's i am pro-russian and you know it's, it's 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 this is baffling i mean these people will conform to whatever push they are getting yep. but it kind of works on a very weird oscillating feature it's kind of like with the what about so it's kind of like throwing like a net out into the ocean to if you can catch any fish but in a weird way, Trump will do his whataboutism, Marjorie Taylor will do her whataboutisms and stuff like that. And just kind of test the water. Mm-hmm. The general public take that as being as indicative of their position. Mm-hmm. And then they drive it. So the general public, the white evangelicals drive the position and solidify it for them in a weird way. Trump is
1: really good at throwing those testers out in the water, yeah. see where everybody is, so that he has. And they're just testers. So he's really ambiguous about it. Uh, and he kind of, kind of gauged where the wind's yeah. blowing and then kind of run full bore into that. I think where he's going to find his, his endpoint is what Niebuhr's or is what Thule brings up here in the context of Niebuhr, where it's going to be kind of distancing itself from that. It, it's kind of the position of apathy. It's, kind of, it's, it's Tucker's original position. What yeah. does this have to do with me? Type of thing. J.D. Vance is going down this track right now. He's running for US Senate in Ohio. And uh, all of his talking points right now are about, you know, you guys care more about Ukrainians dying than my own grandma or my own mother or something. He says something like that. I can see that becoming the position, which is effectively a position of apathy or indifference. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know and I don't care about yeah. what's going on over there. What's, what are the gas prices like? What are, you know, what are they teaching my kids in school? Or, you know, find all these other wedge issues yeah. to distract us from that cruel reality that's happening across the ocean and locate them here into their more bread and butter issues. Um so
2: really we're fake South Populism we're trying to... Yeah, up,
1: it's so. totally Populism. So I, I think that that's probably where they'll land. I think that they'll rather do that than take a side on Russia or Ukraine. And that, yeah, that's gonna become their talking point is focusing in on it here. I don't know, what do you think, Zach?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I just, well, I in do wonder. Point. You know, Because there's on the rise a lot of right-wing Christian media happening, like popping up all over the place. I, I remember when Trump, when they were kind of going against Trump a bit um earlier on in the past two years, their ratings dropped, or when they were lacking support for him in period. Mm-hmm. I wonder, because at the moment, they are showing a lot of support for Ukraine, like Fox News, and like, oh, mm-hmm. let's pray for the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. We have to be here, and these sorts of stuff. And I wonder once these positions for like different Congress people come out the woodwork, I wonder if Fox news will cease to be a, a big player a dominant in the sort of corporate media world as well.
1: But. Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing that could change this, the talking point is it depends on what Putin ends up doing. If he, because he's having a hard time in Kyiv right now. And if he says, screw it out in Western Ukraine and central Ukraine, um, we're going to focus on the lowlands where our tanks can really get going down there on the Eastern end and and forming that uh, kind of land bridge to Crimea. Uh, if we just focus on that, then Putin might say I can go home a liberator and say I've liberated the Russians from Ukraine. Um, and that actually seems like the easiest, the best way out for him at this point. Um, but That could end up becoming a talking point if he goes that route in favor of uh, where the Republicans will be in favor of Putin doing that. Because Trump parroted that same exact talking point of Putin saying uh, this was just a few years ago, said, well, the people in eastern Ukraine speak Russian anyway, basically saying that they're Russian people in eastern Ukraine are Russian. So they're under Putin's jurisdiction anyway, which is, of course, Hitler's justification for, you know, Austria and the central yeah. Uh So uh, I could see it going in that direction. I don't know. What, what do you think, Zach? Well,
0: I was just going to say, I think I've already as just from what I've read, right? I can only go with what I've read. I, I think I've already heard Trump completely change his talking points, sort of like Tucker Carlson did. Um, just kind of a real shift. And I think it was based on what they started seeing on TV and realized that wasn't going to, you don't want to really align yourself with that. I hope so, yeah. I'm not, and again, I'm not, I'm just speculating. Um, Because I think Trump came out and said that it's, his point now is that Biden is weak and this wouldn't have happened on his watch. And so he's kind of positing that more stronger man approach, right? I'm the stronger man. I would have been able to stand up to this so on and so forth. So uh, just putting that out there, you guys, I've,
1: I've already about heard people make that point. Um, somebody okay. who considers himself quite moderate asked me recently on Twitter. was like, um, do you see a pattern? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, uh, well, you know, uh, Bush, Obama, and now Biden under each of them, uh, Putin got his way. Um, And of course, you know, I mentioned, well, Trump gave him Syria, uh, gave, gave Russia Syria without a fight, just gave it to them and sold out the Kurds. But other than that, um, you know, he's trying to make that argument. And I, and I, I was so struck and taken aback by somebody more moderate making that point. And I don't, I still don't know what he's trying to get at. But I, I think to the point that maybe because Putin liked Trump so much that he decided not to go in I don't know it's fanciful it's magical thinking it doesn't it doesn't make any well, sense no, yeah but because were... I, I like Trump that was keeping me from you know taking on all these sanctions and killing uh, all these people and uh you know uh, yeah it was all I, I wasn't doing that before uh you know with Trump because I like him but because I don't like these other people then you know I'm going to and you know do all these bad things to these people and to my own country it's ridiculous
0: well, if I'm correct and remembering, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, um, I think just this week, one of, I believe it was his former national security advisor, Trump's former national security advisor, uh, came out and said that essentially uh, Trump was planning in his second term to withdraw from NATO. And I think that would make this a very different crisis. I mean, it's already, you know, we're already kind of like wondering and we're really glad we're in this alliance all of a sudden. But I almost wonder like, wow, I'm really glad he didn't do that. Because I, I what would it be like right now to be like with no NATO? How how would this they, be different? All you know? of
1: Europe would be Ukraine, you know, they'd all be incapable of there were there would be still NATO, but we would kind of they wouldn't be nearly as strong without the United States. Uh tr- this is no surprise. It was yeah, Bolton, former NATSEC. Yeah. Uh he brought this up, and that was obviously very alarming for him. And Bolton was mind you the natsec and caught in the middle of that whole situation where where Trump was extorting zelensky with yeah. military aid saying i will not give you these ja- javelins and this this uh, military aid um, unless you open up an investigation on biden and he didn't even want he didn't even want biden fe- uh, found guilty he didn't even care about that he just wanted to be able to put him in in i believe it's his own words in a public box so that he, he so that zelensky was forced to go through the shenanigans of this whole big thing so Tr- trump always had that to use against biden anyway so he was even undermining american policy to extort zelensky mm-hmm. so and then So we could see this coming for a while. He actually even was demanding more money from Germany or he wouldn't uh, adhere to to Article 5, which is, of course, the article that says if any NATO country gets attacked, we will be there to defend. Uh, And he and Putin or I'm sorry, Trump. Sorry, I'm getting them confused in my head now. But Trump said that uh, called NATO obsolete. That's his own words. He said it's obsolete. So just think about what kind of situation we'd be in right now if we didn't have NATO.
0: Yeah, no, and I I think of that, and it would have. It's naive for another reason, you know what I mean, or or it's sinister. I don't know. I don't know what Trump's intentions in doing that are. Um, Probably yes. Hard to say. Um, I kind of wanted to circle back around to this idea of like pacifism. Um, I kind of wanted to, if you guys are good with approaching that again
1: um, yeah absolutely and 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 i wanted to throw in there um this, this same quote that that you read and then aaron pointed out again he strove to explain how the united states can counter dictatorship while not sacralizing itself or fantasizing about a world without struggle niebers tend Niebuhr says that there's this tendency of the church to kind of extract itself um from dialogue um through this fantasy uh fanciful understanding of the world, um, uh, so long as they don't engage, you know, then everything will be okay type of thing. But anyway, yes, uh, it's, it's a good segue. Uh, well, yeah, and pacifism.
0: <clears throat> well, just because, like, I mean, and, you know, just pulling up exactly what you're saying from this, or just right next to what you're saying from this article, or from it. Um, he talks about courage, and he talks about wisdom. And I've never felt like I should be involved in a war except for when I was in eighth grade or yeah, I think eighth grade and the United States involved invaded Iraq. And I was very much on that, you know, nationalistic bender. Oh yeah. You we know, were all on that train. I yeah. remember, I, I remember all, all these kids standing around the basketball courts before school being like, yeah, you because know, I grew up in a pretty liberal place. Um, but for some reason ended up more conservative as a kid. Um, Langley, Washington, it's a little tiny, tiny Island, very, they don't even have a gas station because they've, kept that out because they want to keep it, you know, a small town vibe. Anyways, <clears throat> I remember standing there like arguing with these kids being like, no, Bush is right. We should invade. We should invade, you know? And so I've never really felt that feeling again, you know, and obviously I don't agree with, it. in hindsight, I was, I was just an eighth grader, um, but I've never felt that compulsion again to be like, oh, like we should be in this war. But something about this conflict and, and this probably multi- <clears throat> probably a multifaceted issue. And it's an issue that I'm not the only one that feels this way, but you see all these foreign fighters going to fight in Ukraine. And I was thinking about this in light of, you know, is that right to do, you know, is this a, is this a good decision? You know, cause we could talk about it practically. Is it good practically to do this? Like, I, are you just throwing your body at basically a crisis that you are not going to be able to mm. at all contribute to, but is it also the right thing to do? Um because my my gut you know the primal part of me is like oh yeah let's go knock them dead you know but that may not be the right answer you know sending your volunteers from random countries around the united around the world may not be the best response to this conflict i don't know what do you guys think about that because i've been really wrestling with that as we've been kind of talking about never and i don't know where Niebuhr would stand on it so i'm
1: when, when you feel that way like your more primal self is it attached to kind of the larger like uh to like a sense of patriotism? No, or like a loyalty to democracy
0: um I think if I was gonna work it out, I think it would be a, a like a like I despise you know this is just my conception never been to russia been to I've been to Europe, been to a lot of different countries, and I despise i think I have a hatred for the, the tyr- tyrannical environment that is created by dictators, mm-hmm. you know, just from what I've read of it, the lives that you hear that are destroyed, that just the, just watching like an old grandma protesting in the street, getting arrested in Russia. You know, I know that's a little bit of like the, the media is focusing oh, on yeah.
1: that. So but, like bullies but, and like Navalny the, uh, <laughs> and, and pussy Riot And um, sorry, this is a rated PG podcast, but um pussy right you know the band the, the, yeah that got yeah. locked up for um for having a song against putin i think um, that it's yeah.
0: that it, it's that right there it's that like how harmful really are is that old woman that you're locking up you know how harmful really is that protester and i think that's something that it, i know that we have our issues in america too but it's something that americans understand right it, it, we're not all americans but it's something that like the American government understands that, that there's a necessity for protest. There's a necessity for, um, we may not always love it. I mean, obviously both sides criticize the other when they protest, but we don't go like lock up the granny on the street, you know? And there's something about that, that that restraint that it puts on the human spirit that I absolutely abhor. Like I'm a big fan of the Volney. I have a picture of him on my wall actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I just, I hate it, man. Like there's just something about it. Like when I hear about it and I hear about like what it does to, like where people live in fear in their communities, I just like man, I just, and, and I think also I think of thinking of it primarily. I mean, I've read a lot about World War Two. We we just got done reading a ton about World War II. and there comes a point. It seems like when you have to stand up to tyranny, you have to stand up to like a tyrannical kind of the selfish. I mean, just just the idea that he's attacking a country with like and like indiscriminately bombing civilians right now, like that is just like. I don't even want. I don't even want that 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 ruler to ever be in power, right? And I think some of what I'm saying speaks to a certain hostility that that we have to acknowledge about the West, and that is, I think that a lot of Western countries would like to just see Russia go the way of the dodo, and that a democracy would be instilled in there. And I think oh, Russia feel, feels that aggression. Um, but
1: one hundred percent. Yeah, I find it fascinating. Kind of the things that that kind of piss you off about Putin because I, I share the same thing, but how much it aligns kind of with a Christian ethic to us watching from the West, that old granny is enemy number one to Putin. It's not just, Oh, he's even locking up old granny. She is enemy number one because she is the most powerful symbol against the dictator is the most vulnerable. Right, the most vulnerable people in society have the loudest voice, and you know that he cannot tolerate that because those are some of the most powerful people. So there's something of a Christian ethic at work here when we're seeing the power of a vulnerable voice um, being squashed. You know, Um, that's what gets my hackles up.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a really good point, man. I think that's such a good point because, yeah, just that she is powerful, but there's there's like a a goodness to what she's doing right her protest the fact that you're a granny is out on the street i mean not that grandmas could say many good things but it's like you you've gotten her you know you've gotten her out on the street and she is literally reprimanding you like there's just something so powerful about that that is like disarming you know i mean it's like really like but who wants it's to live such in a country? An where- interesting dynamic, and we see yeah. the
1: same thing at play in Tiananmen Square. The whole reason why that dude standing in front of the tanks is so powerful, is because it's because the dude standing in front of tanks. It's because this weakness is standing before this greatness, showing that there is something even better than this tank, and that's the reason I'm here. There's something even greater and more powerful than this tank, and that's why I'm here. And
0: I think that I also recognized, not to belabor the point, but I think that part of my reason that. I feel that like push for some reason out of the blue, just out of nowhere. Um, I think that I also recognize that tyrants, even in life, right? Like the narcissist, like if you guys have ever encountered a narcissist in your life, oh yeah, they they don't like rationalizations don't rationalizations don't work, right? They try to be so rational to you, and I'm just trying to conceptualize this on like an interpersonal level. and try to do uh, international politics on an interpersonal level, but it's like it's like. I know just from experience, you know, I'm a pastor, I encounter people that are probably on the, you know, somewhere on the spectrum of narcissism <laughs> on occasion. Um, and I know that, man, you can talk, you can sit down and talk to them. You can have meetings week after week after week, and it's never good enough. And they'll just keep taking and taking and taking. So I'm not saying you resort to violence with them, but I'm saying on an international scale in my mind, and maybe this is simplification, but eventually, there comes a time when you have to you have to fight back. I mean, and and I, I hate to say that, but it just seems like.
1: Well, that's I'm the sure thing. It seems is like. that like our our Christian sentiment does glorify that woman, uh, but it glorifies that woman to action. It makes us want to do something about it. So it's still, I think, uniquely Christian, and that we want to stick up for it. because if it's if if it if it's not that woman then how else else are they going to win, but by force, you know? Um, Yeah. Like it it leaves me with the deep desire to do something. Yeah. No, and she is, and people like her dude in China, um, they are what kind of compel me to, to think that we actually have to fight on their behalf. We got to do something.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that one of the things that it talks about is like, I think it's just, it, it comes from a natural understanding. And I think Niebuhr really put this into scope for me is that we, we use coercion all the time. Like everything, like, like right now we're, we're coercing Russia deeply. Like we're using some real, real aggressive means. Like I would say almost violent. To oh, it, I like, think it
1: definitely is. But it's going to hurt yeah. people.
0: Oh yeah. People are going to, it's going to like destroy lives. People are going to lose their entire livelihoods because of this. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're living in dread and fear. And it's like it, one of the things that Niebuhr highlights in the, the section that I kind of picked up on is, you know, you have to think about the fact that you have to f- like kind of see through to the end of what your coercion actually accomplishes. You know, it, they even talked about Gandhi's, you know, his, his coercion that he used by uh, <clears throat> I believe it was um, Cotton, I, I believe in India maybe I'm wrong on that, but um, basically it was destroying the livelihoods of people in England. And he actually went and met with them eventually, but um, you know, he had to take that into account. Like what, what I do here, you know, my nonviolent action is actually very destructive. Not bad. It's not a bad thing, but it's also, it's still destructive. I mean, it's still violent, you know?
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's where maybe we should draw a line between pacifism and nonviolence. Nonviolence as a, um, as a tactic is yeah. an extremely potent tactic, so long as uh, there is something of an, uh, there's a baseline, an ethical baseline for the people in power um, and for the people who can communicate it. So the main reason why it worked here uh, is because there were a, a media that would cover it and, and show every day uh, on the nightly news what they're doing to these poor people with dogs and uh, and fire hoses and you know and all these things that were happening in the south, um, that is a very potent force in society. And same thing with Gandhi, you know, um, uh, the actions that he took. But does that work everywhere? Like Aaron and I were talking beforehand, and I was, I said something like, if you lined up, you know, hundred Gandhis on the road into Kiev you know, uh, to get in front of tanks, but the tanks probably roll right over every last Gandhi, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not really um they're not really deterred by vulnerability. In fact, vulnerability is a great enemy. You know.
0: So just kind of circling back on this. So as a pastor what would you advise somebody that wants to go like wants to volunteer? Right. I'm I'm not saying that I'm going to go volunteer or anything, but I, I, if the impulse is arising in me, and I have never thought about doing that, I'm imagining there are some people that, you know, a little more experienced in that kind of, uh, vocation, probably it's really eliciting an even stronger drive. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. What what do you think then? What would you say to a congregant? Uh,
1: I would try to get them to not go, Um, try to get them to think about their families. Uh, And I would probably try everything I could to to get them to not go. Um, But if they're still insistent, then I would say that I will pray for you and I would pray that you, you know, um, do what you can to sustain and create peace and, uh in ukraine is that right R- would you uh, i don't know oh no i was
0: just i was waiting for aaron to see if he had anything um i don't know either man i don't know like part of me thinks that like pra- pragmatically i think it's a bad idea because i think that ukraine will probably lose to some degree you know what i mean maybe not i don't know um, and so you're kind of just throwing yourself into a conflict that's like a few more soldiers is not going to resolve um and I think it also it's a lack of trust in this kind of united Western idea that we can win through diplomacy. Um, but I also I still have wrestled with this idea of violence. If we should, you know, I I love the image of the lamb, you know, from the Revelation, the re, the lamb that is wounded, you know, um, or even the, the image of the granny standing and getting arrested in, in Moscow. Um, she's not using violence. You know, she's just standing up and saying, hey, this is wrong. And she got arrested, you know, Then who knows what happened to her. She might face 10 years in prison.
1: That's a powerful statement, but to what end? Yeah. Is that like, if that inspires, say, a hundred more people who are willing to get arrested and that's it? Yeah. Like what, unless you're taking action that will lead to Vladimir Putin's you know, physically being taken out of that position. Uh, I'm not saying assassination. I'm just saying taken out, removed from that position. <laughs> uh, what are you doing? Like, what? Yeah. what is this, this, this mm-hmm. going to come from this? Because they'll just throw you in prison, you know, and they'll keep you in there. And they're actually becoming much more, uh, much harsher on their punishments for protesters. Yeah. And so that... We could say, I think, that the that the Gandhi tactic is not going to work in Russia.
2: I mean, Nebra's position is, if this is the only method that we can conceive of for deterring or for social change, then we're being naive to what is at the root of the human condition, because undergirding that mm-hmm. sort of Nonviolent resistance is a sort of implicit belief that we're all sort of good mm-hmm. at some level, and yeah. that we just rationalize that goodness or tap into it somehow. Um, what was the neighbor's word that he used um, earlier on? Persuade people to be good by loving their enemies, then we'll be fine. Yeah. That just, well, doesn't make stock of reality if, situation. If a human could persuade
1: all humans to not be violent, then why isn't, just by using rational, rationality or whatever, then why isn't every government on earth employing that tactic of just,
2: mm-hmm.
1: let's just rationalize to the people to stop being murderers and, and thieves and we can get rid of prisons. You know That yeah. doesn't work. And the, part of actually interpretation of Christian ethics, the section that I read out of it, was talking about how they're already trying to make this, you know, governments are trying to make their countries and their citizens maybe not love each other more, but exist in a, in a, in a position where love is possible. Uh, and they're, they're failing, like there's an ultimate, the question is no longer, you know, can you create the conditions necessary for love to occur? But what are the best conditions? And is it, and, and Niebuhr kind of concludes it's all about justice. Is it a more just system than other systems? But you're not going to find that whole law of love in its totality uh, blanketed across an entire people just by persuasion. You know, um, everybody thinks they're good. Everybody thinks that they're doing the right thing. Well, and I just, I, I guess it's, yeah, it's, maybe I'm
0: conflating, right? And maybe this is the big conflation is that people conflate dying for like the preaching of the gospel or the like practice it. Like, like, I think I like Daniel, the story of Daniel, you know, Mm -hmm. and how like he resists this, you know, hegemonic force even to his death. Right. Because he maintains his faith. And I wonder if maybe I conflate the two and that, you know, standing up against tyranny violently um, is different than saying, hey, like, I, I'm going to continue to preach the gospel regardless of what tyranny says. Right. Um, and so maybe there's a conflation there. I, I guess I don't know. Um, I, I sort of wonder if.
1: Well, we, we should be real about the, uh, the tensions that exist in the New Testament. Um, on the one hand, you have Jesus talking about non-retaliation. Um, but that's non-retaliation. It's not necessarily pacifism. It's uh, somebody strikes you on the cheek, you turn the other. Um, And then we have, on the other hand, Paul, basically, I mean, you might read it as him glorifying the state and the sword of the state and saying that it is uh, established by God. Um, and, And in a lot of ways, when it comes to things like war, it might be a proper context to see, to understand nation states more in the context of that Romans 13. Um, as kind of a, a necessary sword um, to maintain justice.
0: Uh, well,
1: I don't know. What does it mean? I guess it,
0: my question is like so. In a lot of ways, this comes down to like, what does it mean that our inheritance, like, because people think of like the inheritance, right, of that comes from Christ, as this imminently positive thing. It's like I get to, you know, I get to be in heaven, or I get to share in the resurrection. Um, but uh, but Paul also stresses like the part of sharing the inheritance of Christ is sharing in his sufferings, and I think that very much speaks to like his death on the cross. Right? We're all you know they use the line take up your uh, you have to take up your cross. Right? You have to bear your cross. Um, and so I you know I wonder like is this the same conversation? Right? Is is sharing the sufferings of Christ, standing up to tyranny, nonviolently and being killed.
1: I, I do think that there is kind of a disposition that, that Christ um, tries to get us to, uh, to undertake or to, to live by. And that disposition being uh, those who want to um, find their life will lose it. And this uh, kind of gearing ourselves toward death and the cross type of thing in order to do what's right. And I do think that's assisting one as they're perhaps defending their own family, we can't say that 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 suffering is always purely um, pacifistic. I don't know, is it? I mean, can I I, you, I, I don't you know. display your love by dying for your family, uh, trying to defend them?
0: Yeah, I don't know. But I I I. But it's the thing that I kind of keep coming back to is I, I start to think like, um, you know, Jesus resisted. Jesus gave, gave his, gives his life, right, in the face of this kind of tyrannical government in Rome. And I think that he, he does so kind of nonviolently. You know, he resists them nonviolently. And it seems to be a very persistent theme of his response to that kind of tyrannical approach to him. You know what I mean? He doesn't resort to violence. And it seems to be that everybody else seems to think that that would have been the proper response you know, his disciples seem to be like, hey, like, it's time Let's take up the sword. And he says, no. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, he eventually does take up the sword. And so that's, I guess, an interesting...
1: Well, yeah, he comes riding on a horse next time he comes. Yeah. He's he's going to take care of business, right? In Revelation.
2: Well, I think as well, Zach, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, right? But if your question is, what would Jesus do I think Never, if we're kind of bringing us back to him, would say Jesus totally encapsulates the idea of nonviolent resistance, right? And it is impressed upon us to do that, but it's not within our real- realistic condition to be able to do it, right? We, in the paper I've read for this section, he contrasts us with the idea we're a second Adam, like we're supposed to be like christ but we're also the crucifier so it is a dialectical tension between the two actors where we're supposed to inhabit the love of god through christ display and be like him but at the same time due to our sinfulness and our pride the reality situations we really can't do it that's why it comes with that technical term the impossible impossible possibility it's a it's possible because Christ has done it, but it's an, it is also impossible due to our condition that we can't fully realize that in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Did that have any relevance to what you said?
0: Oh yeah, no, to <laughs> complete, uh, uh, I yeah. I think I the thing that I find upsetting about that, I actually find like unsettling about it as I read because that's very much Niebuhr's sentiment, especially even in this this section that I read. Mm-hmm. Is I think that it's so wedded to my understanding of. It's so wedded to my understanding of Christianity and to, like, faith, right? Like, I've always, um, you know, you, you press people towards sacrificial love, right? Living a life of sacrificial love. Yeah. That it's sort of weird to kind of conceptualize it and be like, it feels like he's kind of giving up. Yeah, he's fine. But maybe he's yeah. just being realistic, you know, and maybe saying, you know, this is you know, what's necessary in a sinful world. Um, because I, I don't think I'm taking an idealist stance where it's like because uh, uh, this isn't necessarily my position because I haven't really sorted this out um, I'm not trying to take the idealist stance of say oh we just need to hold on to this idea and if we hold on to it eventually we can kind of just win over things yeah um, I think it, I've always been kind of conceptualized it of as if you take on the, the way of Christ eventually you lose in this life like you almost have to follow the path of the fool like to follow Christ is to follow the kind of the, the foolishness, but I don't think that foolishness is embodied in you know as apologists would say in that being otherworldly, but that it requires you to make sacrifices that are somewhat uh, you know by worldly standards kind of stupid um,
1: well I, yeah. I think that to draw in some uh, moral man a moral society yeah that we have to draw a line between the collective and the individual yeah. And I think that Christ can speak to us on the level of the individual, as Christ was himself an individual. We cannot balloon Christ out into a collective um, and expect that collector do, to do anything but self-aggrandize and you know and harm people. If it starts thinking that it is the manifest um, destiny of this people to do this thing because we are Christ, you know, that, that seems like you're playing with fire if you start understanding the ethic of Christ as a collective action. Um, It it sounds, you know, self-righteous. It sounds impossible. It sounds like like the collective nature of humanity, when it tries to reach such heights as a messianic type figure, uh, will ultimately uh, do a lot of harm. And we've seen that throughout history. So I I think that, uh, and this is a point that he, he makes interpretation of Christian ethics, is that we do have to separate the person of Christ from the collective behavior of human beings and understand that there's an inherent evil uh, about uh, our collective selves that is unattainable on a messianic level. Like, like we as individuals should strive towards being more Christ-like, but as a collective society, we need to wrestle with the reality of sin on a mass scale. And as he says, the sad duty of politics is, uh, is, the goal of establishing justice in the sinful world is that we can never make this world. Perfect. Mm. Um, we can never make our society perfect. Yeah. And the law of love, we should understand the way that Niebuhr interprets the law of love is not just our collective or our individual duty to love, but is how is everyone in our society being loved? Yeah. And so the conversation switches from being about, um, okay, I need to love this criminal as I love myself. Yes, but can I do that? Can I really love a criminal as I love myself and still love the community that the crim- criminal lives in? Yeah, um, I'm actually despising my community if I allow this pedophile or murderer to live among these people. Um without rehabilitation, yeah, right yeah, yeah. So there comes in society a necessary collision because of the reality of sin, where we can never fully complete that action of Christ-like love. And so the goal isn't to uh, to balloon the ethic of Christ into a social declaration or, or you know, constitution or something like that, but it's to accept the reality of sin, and try to find proximal methods of establishing love, not only for people to love, but that people can be loved in this society yep. um, by, by way of establishing justice. And justice to Niebuhr is the approximation of love in a political sphere or yep. political or, or economic sphere. So to speak of love in society, you have to speak of justice, mm-hmm. not necessarily this blind cheery, you know, let's sing, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya type yeah. of ethic in society and, and uh, uh, absolute pacifism. But how, how can we best love everybody in the society, the most amount of people possible? Um, and another point that, that I'd like to make uh, is that anytime you attach an ism to something, my mind automatically goes to, okay, let's fit that in with Paul in Galatians talking about circumcision. This ism, does it become another work? Does it become another mode of justification? Do you have to be a pacifist? Is this an extra thing that we're adding on to Christ, that you have to be a pacifist? Now, a pacifist might say, no, that is Christ. Christ is, a, is a, his doctrine is pacifism. And I don't necessarily think that I agree with that. And I think that we have to make a distinction between the person of Christ and kind of what we think is Christ-like. Have you guys seen Silence or, or read the book? Um,
0: oh, but I know the idea.
1: Yeah, the, at the yeah. end, he has to make a decision about whether to step on the face of Christ
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and, you know, basically denouncing Christ. And if he does that, if he denounces Christ by stepping on this plaque with Christ's face on it, then he allows somebody else to live. Do we love the law of Christ? more than our actual brother do we love pacifism more than we actually love our brother does that make sense have we created a a new idol that is passive that actually allows us to passively harm our brothers and sisters
0: yeah well i started i started a book recently it's called winsome convictions and there's this distinctive scene in it where they're they're comparing two different individuals and their response their their pastors and their response to Um, I haven't read a ton of it, so bear with me. Um, Their response to Hitler and one of them refused to do the Nazi salute, right? It's the greatest form of idolatry. Absolutely not. Won't do it. And then they have this other scene where they're reading this story and this this one character, this one member is like really mad at this guy because he says he's going to do the Nazi salute. And he says, hey, look, like we got bigger fish to fry. You know I mean, I, I I'm completely against Nazism, but we got bigger fish to fry than this salute. Well, it turns out that was Dietrich Bonhoeffer
1: uh-huh. that,
0: that said that, you know, and I was like, oh dang. You know, like that's a pretty that's interesting. Because I I agree with him. Like I like I think the Nazi salute is a horrible thing, but at the same time, in that society, there were bigger fish to fry. You know, I mean there was bigger, there was bigger problems. And you know that's interesting
1: because that reminds me of another, it was actually kind of a disagreement between Bonhoeffer and Bart. About whether to include the Aryan um, paragraph, which is all about like you are like the the German church was not allowed to hire Aryan or anybody but Aryans, anybody but but the white race. And Bonhoeffer was taking the opposite answer. He's saying we need to stand up to this. This is our moment. This is our red line. We will not go along with the Aryan paragraph. And Bart was like, yeah is this, is this are we really ready on just this point to to jump in yeah, and it's yeah. just interesting to see like at what point you would make the, it's, it's a similar discussion as the one we are having earlier about Ukraine at what point do you draw that red line and say yeah. we, we will not stand for this
0: yeah well and he made the point if so far in the book he's made the point that like you know he doesn't think either of these two pastors because there's Bonhoeffer and then there's the other pastor who they both end up dead I mean ultimately. Uh, both the pastors do as I understand it because I know Bonhoeffer ends up <laughs> dead and the, the first guy ended up dead but they both took different approaches to kind of fighting back against tyranny you know what I mean um, and same
1: destination though yeah same destination you know
0: um, <laughs> yeah. and so I, I don't have really have a solution but I, it's definitely something that I've and I, again I'm not of the conviction of like extreme pacifism I think it's too idealistic and I just mm-hmm. like there's no possibility for justice in this life and and a just system like If the U.S. government took that approach of pacifism to, you know, police work, there would be so much resentment for, there'd be so much resentment for, for lack of justice from many people that it would be a worse situation. Like people would resent, um, you know, if somebody gets killed in their family, they're going to resent that other group. And then it's just going to, and that's, that justice allows for an alleviation of some of those Mm -hmm. uh, social resentments. Um, but I, I sort of wonder it, maybe we've just read this into Jesus to some degree you know maybe he understood this right obviously because he comes with justice in revelation um, so maybe it's just something we've read into his ideas you know but he just seems so resolutely c- committed that it almost makes me wonder if Niebuhr saying well he kind of gives up on the project, you know what I mean? Uh, but I don't. I don't think that. But I'm like I wonder sometimes: Did Niebuhr just kind of give up on the project of Christ in the sense of like his nonviolence? Did he just kind of give up on that as an uh, on the individual's pursuit of nonviolence?
2: I Does that makes sense. He, I Don't think he gave up on it. I just think he recognizes the tension that each of us as individuals comes into existence with. Right? Mm. Like we. Can aspire to be like Christ, yet, due to think of this way, he brings up the example of um, loving your neighbor as yourself. Do we do this on a daily basis or perfectly? No. Why is that? Well, on the one hand, um, we hate our neighbor, we steal against them, we do things all the time that violate love for our neighbor we don't do it perfectly. So we can't attain that reality, even though that's an injunction we are commanded to do in the same way, he brings up a really interesting example about not worrying about or casting your anxieties for tomorrow away for God knows exactly what you need. And he says, well, the, 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 that injunction is also viable on a daily basis. Number one, it shows implicitly that anxiety is the basic condition that human beings live in. Right. And it's part of our freedom. Mm um but we're always worrying about what tomorrow holds and we're always you know i think that probably means we're not trusting in god but it's an injunction we violate on a daily basis so it's not the sense that we give up that trying to be like that but it's just the condition the reality that we can't really obtain that reality in our in our current is it safe to say that
1: and this is something that's come up a lot in our discussions for the past year on Niebuhr. Um, we're always left, I think you brought this up last week, Zach, about Niebuhr's always drawing you back to confession and drawing you back to recognizing how deep the sin goes. And you never yeah. really recognize it's in every, like it's tinging every motivation, yeah, every way of viewing the world, all your perspectives and all your judgments of other people. Like it's so embedded in you that it almost seems like we're a separate category. We, 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 could we go so far as to say that we are almost a separate category of existence as Christ, but we, we kind of miss the point of Christ too, if we do that. Um, of But maybe this is where Niebuhr getting at with the, with the impossible possibility is that this, these things are possible for us, but they're not realistic. Yeah. Like we can't live in that. Yeah. We can't, And in fact, the more we pretend that we aren't these sinful beings and that we are just like Christ, actually, the more dangerous we are to one another. And this is what he brings up, modern
2: passive, modern passive. He kind of compares historically to, you know, more aesthetic forms of pacifism um, back in the early church, where the idea wasn't to have some sort of for social change as a result of loving your neighbor it was to withdraw from the community to have no social responsibility whatsoever so in today's modern pacifism, he he makes a really interesting point at the end of the paper that it is just the result or the sort of culmination the fruit of of renaissance thinking that we are good people and if we just love each other enough, we can all society can change and we going all be good. He compares that to the communist idea that if we if we just get rid of cl- the classes in society or we get rid of property, then all that evil is dispensed with and we can all live in ho- social harmony with one another. It just isn't a reality that I can obtain, right?
1: Right. You're you're never reasoning from a point of purity. Yeah. And you're never Christ to begin with. So,
2: And I think it's really a good thing because we, when we've talked earlier, we, we've kind of used this idea that the church can transcend its social situation to critique it. But the beauty of that is it, it kind of oscillates backwards that those who are able to stand outside have to critique themselves as well mm-hmm. because we're not in a pure position just in the church which might go against maybe the Bar- Bartianism and whatnot at this mm-hmm. point. Right. But uh, it, for me, the, I think the question goes back to, you know, what is the goal of pacifism? What are we trying to do? Yeah. Are we just trying to be martyrs or are we just trying to have some sort of change? Yeah.
1: Puritanism is probably so yeah. uh, they could sleep at night or, I
2: mean, Niebuhr in this paper puts that the orange and the root of pacifism actually probably has its root in platonic philosophy mm. where the body is seen as evil, whereas the forms, the eternal is seen as the good. And so when we're trying to emulate this sort of eternal, absolute ideal, right, um, which we're kind of downgrading our position in the world, in in the everydayness of what we have going on. So, you know, what Cliff was saying earlier, I can't remember the examples you're putting, but in my mind, if we were to boil it down in a sentence, I think pacifism um really the result is ending and neglecting our positions in the world if it's if if all we're cared about is the status of the church that becomes a sort of idol yeah and then we we lack the care for other people outside the church yeah you know mm-hmm. and what's the message of christ come down to at that point I, I
1: love the position that you bring up about the position of the church being kind of outside of politics and that lends us the ability to more adequately or powerfully critique the system mm. But that also provides its own temptation of pretending we're not a part of that system whatsoever. And yeah. we, are, we are capable of a purity that's above and yeah. transcends that of, of the state type of thing. And I, I have a great quote by a neighbor. Um, he says, um, and he imagines, he, he calls it kind of a profound religion, or we could call it maybe an abstract re- religion or a detached or escaped religion. Um, but he puts it this way. It will be found in the fact that a religious interpretation of life, which does justice to the ultimate problems of human existence and is able to apprehend the final possibilities of good and evil, does not find it easy to deal with the questions of relative good and evil which are the very stuff of the political order. So what he's saying is that we have this great position as where we can stand out from the nitty gritty uh, relativizing of justice and love that happens in the political and economic realms. And we can kind of uh, transcend it to a degree to bring down kind of these ideals that we should all be striving for. But that has a tendency to limit what we can say in a relative world. And and the more that we kind of get, lose hope over that venture, the more we turn against it and, uh, and think that our high and mighty view of the way that we should be. Is not possible in that realm. But what is saying is it it's necessary. It has to exist in this realm. Mm-hmm. It has to exist as at least partly as you know as a part of the state and, and economics. Um, you can't totally this is where everybody lives, is in this realm. You can't totally extract yourself from that and go. And and I thought it was fascinating. The point you brought up with a lot of these early forms of pacifism come from uh, monasticism and kind of leaving the world because that's kind of the only place that it can exist yeah. in a form of escapism i brought this up uh before i brought this up to pacifist friends but um i wonder how much of pacifism is actually a position of privilege yeah and luxury it's because maybe you are middle-class white, you know, uh, living in the United States, separated from the world by oceans, that you can have this position of nonviolence or this position of pacifism where absolutely you will never do this type of thing. Has your child ever been gassed? You know, (laughs) like, is this just you picking these uh, perfect, you know, uh, abstract ideals from the clouds and this is just allowing you to judge all the other people below you um and it really just removes you from the discussion the, the yeah. meaningful discussion of you being able to infuse some of these absolutes as a direction to the relativism
2: um i would love to ask that question to our contemporary isolationists and see what they have to say as well. yeah that's yeah. a side point i think you you know,
0: yeah yeah i think you know and that that's a really good point because actually it's something that I guess the evangelical church, you know, as I'm part of that spectrum of things, I think it's something that we're really guilty of is just inaction. You know what I mean? Um, and just kind of like, hey, we're going to purify the church, kind of like you guys have been talking about, you know, Barth, the Barthian kind of approach. Like we need to stay a confessional church, and that otherworldliness almost keeps us from actually acting. You know, and so if we conceptualize Jesus's love strictly as saying. Oh, like you just need to be nonviolent and not disruptive and all this other stuff. Um, not use coercion, I guess. Um, I feel like almost your ethics become separated from your view. Like, cause you don't, you, your ethics at church become separated from your ethics outside of the church mm-hmm. or you just don't do anything. You know what I mean? You just kind of like, well, I'm just not supposed to do anything, but it's like, there's a very clear call for justice, like to maintain justice and mercy in the Bible. And it's like, you can't have justice without coercion. You know what I mean? Um, In my, I won't be able to find it, but there's another quote I was going to throw out there. It's G.K. Chesterton. I sent it to the group beforehand. You know, he he says, uh, pacifists don't want peace. What they want is war with people who are not pacifists. And I think it kind of speaks to some of the inevitabilities, right? If you have powerful, coercive groups that are very aggressive, they're almost always going to win out over groups that are Nonviolent and um willing to concede kind of all the time not willing to take aggression as a as a form of uh, maintaining justice and mercy does that make sense
2: yeah yeah that's that's, that's, I, there's a there's a section as well in my paper which is to call it the question the, why the church is not pacifist and Niebuhr's has a lot of these weird like modes of opposition between points like the dialectic right? Which I think you know between second adam and crucifier between violent uh non-violent uh, uh, non-resistance versus non-violent resistance he makes it quite a, a, a the point of the, defining the two um but he also has this point between sanctification versus justification hmm. and the way we think about about these two points in, in paul's um um own reflections upon his own like You know actions and how he thinks about, you know, is it no longer I that cry, but I that Christ lives in me. Mm -hmm. And he says, if we think of, this is loosely kind of kind of uh, moving on this on this topic. I'm not directly quoting him here, but sanctification as a sort of empowerment to do something different or to be someone different has this sort of ideological tint to give us the impression that we can rise above our condition. We can be something else, uh, but if we think of justification as God forgiving us despite our condition, and is a, pri- a privileging factor to sit in it and really reconsider who we are and where we're at, uh-huh. we have to. Then we can actually deal with the situation more realistically, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's good.
0: Well, another I, thing I was going to throw in there. A, a quote that probably should is an obvious thing that Niebuhr said, but it, something that really stood out to me. Is, he said in uh, "Moral Man and Moral Society" he says all social power is partially derived from actual possession of physical instruments of coercion, economic or martial. And I was like, oof, yeah, man, that's you know, even even the person that's resisting nonviolently is taking hold of some sort of power from society and using that against a more powerful unit of society. Yeah. Like, and, and it really comes down to either economic or martial. So just think I'm... about the,
1: the, the fact that we live in a government that, recognizing, that recognizes freedom of speech, that in itself is a power that you yeah. are exploiting. Um, people got to listen to it, and the yeah. media is going to broadcast. It. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I'm struck by is this is brought up earlier is the sheer simplicity that I think is so seductive about pacifism, um, the like I want my faith to be simple. Like you know, I, I I want to be like the child, you know, that that has this simple faith. Um, as Niebuhr brings up in Children of Light, Children of Darkness, though we are to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. That's another dialectic that I, I really love. Um, being shrewd, wise as serpents and innocent as doves and being able to to play that uh, dialectic off of itself. I have an example of kind of the simplicity of thought about the ability for a pacifist to kind of get lost in their own hypotheticals. Um, Harawas and Resident Aliens. And this might've been, this was either Harawas or Willemette because they wrote together. I don't know which one wrote this, but I'll just say Harawas because he's more recognizable. Um, and obviously put his name on it, so. Um, but uh, Harawas tells a story of students coming up to him and saying, so your pacifism will disallow you from, what, what, we, what would you say to Reagan um, about whether to bomb Libya to get rid of these oppressors that are killing babies or whatever? Um, and Harawas said something to the point of, well, everything that I would do, um, uh, is, in, is in some way incapable by our our current political system or our, the current state of the church. He goes on, he says, um, so the, the, the student asked for, okay, what would you do instead of bombing these people or, or killing these Libyans? And he said, well, um, if it were up to me, I would call up the United Methodist Church, which was his church at the time. We would have a thousand missionaries in Libya tomorrow. Um, to take care of these kids and to lay down their life uh, to protect them, yada, yada, yada. Um, and the, the student quickly said, Reagan would never let you into Libya. Um, you can't go in there. And Harawas concludes by saying, we can't go in there, but it has nothing to do with Reagan not allowing us. It's the fact that our church is so weak now. That was it. That was his conclusion on what to do with Libya. Notice it doesn't do anything. It is a, it is completely irrelevant. Um, And I'm left asking the question, is that all you got is a hypothetical to deal with real evil is just imagining the church being more powerful to be able to send a thousand missionaries in there or something like that. It is, I don't know. It it just seems like it's an, it's an extremely weak. It seems like, and it's, and it's passivity, it's more harmful or it's just as harmful as the Libyans.
2: Mm. who and were killing really, the kids yeah i think it's quite interesting as well because i know if you go to the first Corinthians, paul says that the power of god is displayed through christ crucified right so there's that point where well if we're into a habit the power of god it is this sort of sacrificial uh conduct i think even gorman calls it the cruciform lifestyle right um but it's just interesting that pa- <laughs> Pacifism is, I guess, this sort of method of removing oneself from the dialogue of power, I guess, right? Removing oneself of this is which power cleansing now, oneself of yeah, the power. But now he's saying, but, but uh, how I was saying it the church is more powerful, mm, we would be able interesting. to. Interesting. I mean, and what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I don't know. It, you can only take that to mean
1: more privilege, more resources. The society, more resources, more influential. But that means more he, he inter- would interpret it as more faith. He would say it's a more faithful church. Yeah, of course. But what is Surely. the what is the result on the ground of that faithfulness? Yeah. Is it more resources? Which some mean, more money, which would
2: mean more interconnectedness into society. Yeah, and more yeah, more
1: influence. Yeah,
0: just a different kind of coercion.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. See, even in this, and this goes back to Niebuhr's point that we're all cloaked in sin. Like, there's no way out of that state. That mm-hmm. at some point there is going to be a coercion <laughs> in your action.
0: And ultimately, I think that what's sad, I, I hate to bring this up, but the, the sad rejection of Howard Ross's view is that, I mean, did you guys, any guys read or hear any of, you know, uh, Krill, the guy that is like the head of the ortho, Russian Orthodox Church? Did you guys, I mean, he came out and basically just supported the invasion. You know, it's yeah. like. And, and Tully uh, brings
1: I mean, that up at the end, like the Russian Orthodox Church has gone fully along with us.
0: Yeah. And, and historically, that has not yeah having more christians in a nation has not stopped i mean maybe it has because i guess we don't know the alternative but i mean let's just safe to say that they can easily be corrupted you know what i mean
1: what is the difference functionally at the end of the day between a the russian orthodox leader um vocally supporting putin and what's the difference between that and the russian orthodox leader saying well we've always been against war is there any functional difference between the two? I you
0: mean, know, there's think there's, like, there's a functional difference to him coming out against it and saying that it's no, unjust against all wrong.
1: wars. He's always been oh a, against all wars. If it's he were fun, to come no. out and say this is an unjustifiable war, that's a different statement than saying I am against war. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I I would contend there's no difference between the guy who vocally supports Putin functionally. And the guy who just, who removes himself or herself from the dialogue and just say I'm always against war. Yeah. Right. There's no nuance there. It's, it's, it's like what Nibir was saying that the church has a difficult time transmuting these absolutes into a relative form of justice. Um, We have a very difficult time being relevant in politics because of that very reason. I guess I just hate the
0: fact that we, it's almost like there's a necessity to do evil or there's a necessity to which is true. I mean, there's a necessity to, not necessity to do evil, but a necessity to do something that's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's wrong, you know, it, not wrong. It's um, yeah. Well, I mean, I get, it's wrong. I got to frame it like there's There's a necessity to go kill other people at, well, in, in some situations.
1: I think the Niebuhr would say that it is still wrong. And that's like, that's yeah. what a lot of people would say. Oh, what miss miss and saying, Oh, this justifies war. Therefore, it's good. This is a holy war. And yeah, we no. need to get in there and, and kill all the Russians. But he would say you should just you should be just as haunted by the war you win. Yeah. As the war you lose. I, and I that's
2: a really good point. Because I just wondering, like, if I were to sit like in Ukraine and fire a weapon and kill somebody, right? And I said to myself, I was justified in doing this. That language of justification has theological. Implications in many direct. cases, right? Yeah. So would never tell me directly you were justified in killing that man or that woman. No, <laughs> see, that's the thing. Maybe we're mispointing here then. Yeah. The neighbor's not saying this is ever justified or this is ever a necessary thing to do. Is it's it's something that is just part of our condition. Yeah. Necessary in, in the sense. I think necessary has this really weird relationship to justification. That if I say it was necessary for me to do, therefore I am morally obliged to do it. Right. Right. So, Niebuhr's case is that that relation is a bit fuzzy. Yeah. It's never the case that because it's necessary, therefore I'm morally justified in doing this. Yeah. This may be something we should have clarified from the top. Yeah. It's always evil. It's always evil. evil for Niebuhr then it's not the case of you know saying that you know we're all justified in killing these Russians I mean I think the point we made about his position on you know looking the church looking back from the position of like uh, not even neutrality but being able to have it to reflect upon its own weaknesses and internal struggles our own conditions really plays into this this fuzzy relationship between necessity and moral justification and I
0: think that it's, ne- it's necessary to say that because Niebuhr would say, like, we don't occupy the place of God. And so it's impossible. We're so clumsy. And so, you know, our, our ability to determine what is right and wrong is so foggy yeah. that we don't like, I mean, I think that's a great point. Our, it, our, our view is so foggy that inevitably the, the war that we say is justified is going to do harm that, we, that was not good right yeah. it's gonna it's gonna commit violence it's not good and i think of david the story of david in the bible it's such a great example like where where god's like you know no, you're not building my temple right <laughs> you've, you've committed evil acts mm-hmm. i think when we when we all love that yeah yeah that. It, it, it's a, but yet at the same time david's a man after god's own heart and so it's like this weird david clearly there's god is saying he's defiled by war and so god's obviously opposed to war but it doesn't like separate him from God I guess I mean it doesn't
1: yeah uh for our audience play back sometime go back and, and look at the announcements of Trump and Obama when Trump had them pull the trigger on killing Baghdadi and when Obama had them pull the trigger and kill Osama bin Laden look at the ways that they're communicating um I find it fascinating that Trump's was almost a celebration um, that they've offed this horrible, um, this horrible dude. Obama looked like he was giving a eulogy. Like he almost looks. I don't. I don't. I don't want to say he looked sad, but it was very solemn. The way he talked about killing Osama bin Laden, um, but assuring that this is, you know, uh, that we can, you know, basically rest easy tonight. But it wasn't a celebration. And I'm not saying this to kind of exalt Obama, but Obama is a Niebuhr fan, okay? And and maybe maybe not this played out in his mind, but I I do find it refreshing to see in a president or a leader to mourn things that are perhaps justified but are also evil, you know, that are also not great, you know. Well, I I think of like that tension.
0: Yeah, I think of like just like. Uh, like killing animals on a farm, you know, like I'm not saying humans are the same as animals, but like, I've never like even fish when I'm, when I'm fishing in Alaska, um, we, you know, you, you end up getting a lot of fish and filleting them. And it's like, man, like I it never, it never gets normal to me. Every, every time I kill one, yeah. I'm just like, there's just like a, like a part of me. It's like, I just don't like this. You know, the death bringing death about, you know, for my own like but, needs, yeah. it, anyways
2: beyond that sentiment like what what happens here matters and i think yeah. that's that's the point you know you might might want to ask harawas does anything that happens in history matter then of course empires rise and fall and i think even Niebuhr and harawas could agree that war is evil it's not a good thing but for Niebuhr we have to have some sort of action because what matters, what happens on Earth and on our own history, yeah. it matters. It, it affects human beings, people made in the image of God, you know. But you know, if we retreat into the church and you know close our and ring our bells, yeah. What sort of stance are we taking? Like, well,
0: I think, yeah, that's such a good point because Niebuhr says at the end of uh, uh, at the end of my. The chapter that I read, he says, just trying to scroll down to it here. He says, um, the history of human life will always be the projection of the world of nature. The end of history, the peace of the world, as Augustine observed, must be, must be gained by strife. It will therefore not be a, a perfect peace, but it can be more perfect than, than it is. Mm-hmm. If the mind and the spirit of man does not attempt the, the impossible, if it does not seek to conquer or eliminate nature, but tries only to make forces of nature, the servants of human spirit and the instruments of moral, of the moral ideal, a progressively higher justice and more stable peace can be achieved. And I think that that's like the classic realism. You know what I mean? Yeah. uh, The,
1: the the qualifiers are like the, where he kept on repeating more, more just, more peaceful, uh, I, that is, it's, uh, it's very Niebuhr and he's never talking about what is righteous and unrighteous. He's talking about what is more in line. Um, and this is where a lot of people are on the Bharti and side might paint him as a pragmatist and say that he's a pragmatist wearing Christian clothes and, and that type of a thing. But Niebuhr says no, you know what, their Christianity is here to make the world better. And this is, I think, Dorian like traces this to Niebuhr's liberal background. But Niebuhr deeply believes that Christianity doesn't just exist here to create a bunch of hermits, um, and to create a bunch of passive little church mice. But it's but Christianity is here to actually bring the kingdom here, Mm -hmm. and what that takes is being involved in a sinful world, and having to make things better through that sinful world you're you're standing in the toilet trying to clean the toilet Uh, you're not you know standing from the outside of it uh this perfect uh clean position while you're cleaning it um you're always cleaning with a dirty rag you know uh that that's the Niebuhrian uh perspective i i love um statement where he says that uh there are there are things worse than war Mm-hmm. And at first, when, like, when I first would hear that, I'd, you know, it's a nice statement and you kind of, you know, there's more profound things than, and what Niebuhr's written. It was actually quite profound to say yeah. that there are actually things worse than war. Mm. Uh, implying there are, there might be things where you must go to war to keep from happening. Yeah. Um, tyranny uh, holding people, holding people down and enslaving people, uh, human rights violations of all kinds. There are some things that are worse than war, the silence in in Russia or, or the trying to coerce them into silence. Um, all these things are ultimately worse than war. And that is making just that simple distinction actually allows us, I think, to progress. It's, it's not the old, uh, I think, pop philosophy that war causes more war. I think Niebuhr actually sees that if you're just choosing the absolute necessary war and still claiming that it's evil, that can actually help create and sustain a much safer world uh, to a degree. Not to glorify war. But yeah. to say that to act ethically and with perspective and proportion, um, sometimes involving war, uh, always toward the betterment of human beings, then that yeah. will create a more perfect society.
0: And I think what makes to, to go along with what you're saying to make, so, uh, I think one of the underlying issues we have with any form of coercion, especially violence, is that we know that we're not good at determining what it is. That's really the underlying issue is that like, half the time we come out of it and we go, Oh my gosh, like we were way off. Like we, we did not handle that. Right. But that's why we really, need
1: to be ready for repentance. Yeah. yeah
0: you, you can really see a Niebuhr's approach here when he says, but it can be more perfect than it is. Yeah. Right. A, a progressively higher justice and more stable peace can be achieved. He hasn't given up on the, uh, it made me realize he hasn't really given up on, in some ways, some of the ideas of, uh, I'm blanking on the movement that he kind of started in
1: social gospel, Yeah, social
0: gospel movement. Um, he, he hasn't really given up on that. He just has a more realistic view of how it's actually achieved, right? We yeah. can achieve mm-hmm. a better world. And I actually find myself really wanting to be in Never's camp here because I'm so stinking tired of, you know, I, I came out of a, a dispensational school. Both of my schools are pretty influenced by dispensationalism and they're so focused on the otherworldly, the isolated, the, Hey, we're just here to survive until the end times, and it's like, no, get out there and start making a better world. I know we're not gonna win. we're not gonna win. We're not gonna make a better world, hmm. the, the ideal world, but we can make a more, more perfect than it is.
2: I wonder. I that, yeah. Sorry, Zach. Go ahead. Sorry. No, go
0: ahead. That that was it.
2: I just have two thoughts, and I think that's really interesting. Like the whole, you know, your background, because I've always wondered if like the reason why people resign to these sort of theological positions is because it's really hard. I mean, to dive into Niebuhr's thought in nuance, it's awkward and it's not fun because, you know, for the past year, we've been talking a bit about Niebuhr and you and I at the first beginning, we we were kind of hesitant to even say, well, what what do you want us to do, Niebuhr? (laughs) Just tell us. Just tell us what to do. But then when you get into it, it's like, well, you know, you, you begin to see the, appreciate the complexity of the human condition. When you see that we can be part of this institution which can critique something but then if we allow ourselves to think that because we're able to critique we're standing above it and are better than it then that in in essence we become part of the problem yeah you know um i, I was just thinking that um perhaps and you know, what we should say and it is some of my pacifist friends even i when i was in ccu we used to quote, well, you know, you're, you are in the world, but not of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should complicate the phrase and do it other, on the opposite and say, you are not of the world, but you are in it to emphasize the other reality that <laughs> we are actually in the world and we need to do stuff and need to be That's part right. of it. Right. So, um, so those are my two points, but well, yeah,
0: no, but like, and, and, you know, it really speaks to the fact that like, th- you know, evangelicals will sometimes come out of, well, we'll kind of kind of come out on some issues, right? We'll be like, well, we need to have some justice, right? We need to have some justice, like the, the big one would be like abortion, right? <laughs> we need to have, we need to have, um, or, or, you know, there's been a lot through history, but this is kind of the one that's maintained right now. But when it comes to other issues, there's like this silence. It's like, well, we recognize, like they're saying, we want to create a more just society, and this is what we see as functioning as a just society. But it's like this one issue. It's not like, hey, Uh, there's a bunch of social issues not just abortion like there's a bunch of non-judicial right like not determining life or death
1: Um, there's so many i think that is uh worthy of a discussion itself evangelicalism and their involvement in politics and um that yeah we need we need to save that one but it's interesting how they pick and choose and it's interesting how they uh how kind of a single issue can umbrella an entire party's activism um but anyway uh it's probably a good time to wrap things up i would love i i'm sure that we will return to pacifism at some point um because this is a, an issue it was a lightning rod issue at Niebuhr's time it's a lightning rod issue today um and i i th- think that, you know, if I were to go back and listen to this podcast again, I'm sure that we're probably unfair to pacifism at certain points. And it's it's important to to say that. Um, I think that there are people who will call themselves pacifists who would defend their family. Uh, It gets hairy where, you know, where they draw those lines. Um, But it, it is important to just say, uh right now we're sorry if uh if we oversimplify the issue of pacifism um we'll we'll do more justice to it at some point maybe we'll read some yoder or Harawas uh later on um and and maybe have somebody we, we have friends who are uh really into that stuff so we'll maybe bring some friends on here to have a hopefully a good discussion about um how they articulate that position uh, but it's—I th- I think it, it was good to at least broach the subject, and it's something that maybe we can return to. I'm sure that we will return to later on about Niebuhr's pa- uh, uh, anti-pacifism. Um, but that's a good place to stop. So, uh, thank you all for listening so much, and um, uh, we and tell your friends about it. Be sure to like, follow, or subscribe. Um, our Twitter account is simply at Love Thy Niebuhr at love thy neighbor is our twitter account so make sure you give us a follow until next time so long everybody and stay safe out there